0: Welcome to the pre pod. My name is Lexi. And my name is Natalie. And we're a podcast by students for students who are here to meet you wherever you are. How's it going, Natalie? How was your past few weeks? It's wonderful.
1: Thank you for asking. Very relaxed, very chill. You know, just trying to rejuvenate from last semester and get ready for the upcoming one. How about you? What are you up to? What you doing?
0: Um, I just got done with work. Work has been kind of stressful lately, but not really? too bad, just very overwhelming. Yeah, at the dermatology clinic, there has been a lot more patients yeah. uh per day loaded onto our schedule. Um, hmm. is there, all the is snowbirds the are here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the snowbirds uh come down to Arizona where I am and get right. their skin checked.
1: <laughs> busy time for dermatology yes for sure I would say at my work too we've had a lot of a lot of patients coming in recently it was actually kind of nice A patient came in and she is a um, part of the Plains Indian and she was um, she made us a bunch of little um, beaded artwork things <laughs> I don't oh my god know really that's what so nice called. yeah she gave me a dream catcher
0: So I have a dream catcher from a
1: patient hanging over my bed right now.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, that's so sweet. Yeah, Yeah. all of our patients have been bringing in like chocolates and cookies. And every time a, a patient brings in something, we all like, we have these like Christmas cards on hand that we have the whole like staff sign before they leave so we can give it to them. And I think I've signed like 30 of these cards so far.
1: (laughs) Like, thank you for the goodies. Oh,
0: that's so cute. You sent out thank you cards.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like the office manager goes around and it's funny, they have this like list of everybody's name on it and we have to cross Mm -hmm. it off. And I have to pass it to the next person. And I'm like, "I I know you're doing something important right now, but can you just sign this real quick? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. You have to. You have to do that hard job of interrupting whatever they're doing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Signature. It's all right. Oh, it's fun <laughs> that they're bringing in treats. That's so nice. I love getting yeah. like
0: that. <laughs> patients are so sweet. They really, really are, and especially in a a field where you have more long term care with our patients. Um. Yeah. So I can see them once a month or once a year. I guess not as long-term as once a year, of course, but (laughs) having them come in multiple times, it's like, oh, I've never had to experience longitudinal care like this. That wasn't the case in the ER. So, Do you think that you'll want
1: to go into a specialty with long-term care for your patients? Um, Have you given any thought to that?
0: No, that's a great question. I think I honestly don't really have a preference either way. I think as long as I am, I know it's cheesy, but just making a difference. (laughs) And <laughs> their lives and I don't need to, if honestly if am I, I'm in a profession where I don't need to see them again you know I have taken care of their illness or whatever they came right. with I'm satisfied
1: yeah but, that's the goal yeah. right yeah <laughs> volunteering the other day and the nurse um I went to I went upstairs in the hospital and the nurse that I was interacting with because I had to take her patient down to the parking lot she was so phenomenal and sweet and she was just talking to the patient she goes you know it's been such a pleasure to take care of you guys but I really hope I never see you again yeah (laughs) I was like yeah that's that's pretty fair (laughs) (laughs) the motto of healthcare. But speaking of your specialty interests, how is your medical school application going? What, where are we at in the cycle? Have you gotten all of your acceptances yet? Yeah. Or when do they finish sending out those?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I just got notice of my second acceptance today. Yay! I was uh, driving home from work. And it's funny because uh, on my interview day, they told me that they would let us know December 18th. So like a month from my interview day and they would give us a call. And if I, I guess I didn't get a call, then I wouldn't get in or I'm not really sure actually. But they said, if you're accepted, you will receive a call that day. And then I got an email yesterday. It was like, you know, the Christmas holidays are coming up. We're actually going to call you tomorrow, which is the day. (laughs) Oh, so they gave you a heads
1: up. That's great.
0: Oh, so they were like, expect a number from this number or expect a call from this number um, Mm -hmm. if you're accepted. I was like, oh god! So I like kept oh. my Apple Watch on all day at work. Yep. <laughs> and I end work on, on noon on Friday, so I was lucky. Literally, as soon as I got in my car, it was like twelve oh five. They called me, and I was oh, like, oh my gosh! Yeah, I don't have yeah. to interrupt a patient, <laughs> right? Well, I wonder what um, they would
1: do if you were just like busy at that exact moment.
0: I told the PA I was working with. I was like, hey, I might get a phone call. Like, do you mind if I step out? But if wouldn't not, it be just
1: like so funny though if you just like stepped away to like use the restroom or something and you can't yeah call. The call is like on your phone and
0: answer it on my apple watch um yeah. <laughs> but no i was uh i was so excited and the dean of admissions called me yes, it's definitely that's... a lot more personal than my first acceptance. they. Read me a letter about what the admissions committee liked about my application and what stood out to them. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool. And it was different because yeah. the their interview format was an MMI. So I didn't really okay. wasn't able to have that personal touch with my application. Right. Which is something I really liked with the other school that did. But I think when they added up that on the acceptance, um, it made a world of difference. And the dean, um, he was like, he asked me if I got any other acceptances. <laughs> and I was like Ooh, oh, are they supposed to do that <laughs> he's like where and I was like I told him um and it was just so nice because he was talking to me about my options and whether or not I wanted to like stay in a certain place or move and uh oh, okay. I'm just really excited and this cycle has been very interesting and it's, it's funny as soon as I got the call I got an email from a school that I got rejected to so oh. it's just like
1: <laughs> one door closes know, another door, door opens with some punches.
0: right yeah, yeah.
1: That's- that is, well i'm i'm so proud of you i'm so happy for you you deserve every single acceptance that is rolling in i just can't wait for the whole process to be concluded so that all that stress is off your back and you don't have yeah. to be, like hovering around your email and your phone
0: <laughs> yeah so to give listeners perspective it's around december right now um of 2023 way back when mm-hmm. and I am halfway through the cycle. So I, all of my interviews should be concluded. I don't know if I'll hear from any more. I haven't, I don't have any other interviews lined up. I have interviewed at four schools um, and heard from two schools. I have not heard from or been rejected by the schools I've interviewed at like the other two. I haven't heard from them yet. And then I think interview season ends around February or March. It depends on the school. I I made this like big spreadsheet of all the schools I applied to mm-hmm. and I included the interview deadline. So if you look at their website, they'll hard. say when they stop. So like one school ended in December. So I knew and I did get a rejection from them the other day that that would be their final decision. And then some schools interview all the way through March. Um, so it really just depends. And then I think the wait list starts rolling out in April. If you don't get any acceptances and uh you get put on the wait list and you could start hearing from people around April all the way until you start medical school. So every person's cycle is so different and true. So subjective I really just got lucky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Too with especially one of the schools I got into, she, the admissions committee member just said they really resonated with something very specific about my application. And I think if that person didn't read my application, I don't know what would have happened. So, well, that's incredible. That is so incredible. So I've applied to about 23 schools, uh, did secondaries for all of them, um, which was around from like 80 to $120 per secondary application on top of the primary application. Uh And then I've heard from about four schools and been accepted to two. So that's halfway through the cycle um, yeah, wow. And I have a lot of friends who have like not heard from any, or yeah. have interviewed, or have been accepted to like four plus. So every every the app, like every person's application and story is just so different. So
1: different, yeah. But That's yeah. so true. Wow, twenty three schools, and we've got two acceptances. That's amazing. That's really actually so incredible. You know, there's so many people that can't get one, which is fair because you sometimes you just have to try again. Like it's all about perseverance and just keeping going with your goals if that's what you want to do but I'm just so excited for you do you think that you're now conflicted like do you have are you stressed about having two options
0: (laughs) uh yeah uh, I definitely am I remember I literally was driving after work on to on the way to my therapist appointment
1: (laughs) yeah that's right where I would go to straight to the therapist straight to the therapist (laughs) so
0: we we hash it out
1: (laughs) There you go. Um, that's the best way I can think of to deal with the news. <laughs>
0: yeah. The good reason, though, is both of the locations are the same cost of living as where I'm living now. Oh, great. So that's for like my partner if he yeah, wants to move with really... me. So, you know, mm. like just those life things you have to discuss. Like, do we want to pick up and move our life somewhere else? My family is on the East Coast, and one of the schools is on the East Coast. And I, um, my family really wants me to go there. Yeah. Might be nice. I don't know. To I don't be know. Near
1: your family. <laughs>
0: yeah, I have some applicant visit days or an applicant visit days. I think it's uh, first looks, is what they're called. Oh, yeah. So the medical school invites me to their school and gives me more information about their program. I can meet with medical students, and this yep. is around April time
1: that is awesome and you know what I just found out about first looks yeah <laughs> I did not know that was something that they did but that's awesome really I didn't you know either to... did you actually Until not a couple oh, weeks okay, ago good. <laughs> <laughs> okay good I was feeling a little bit like wow how did I not know about that but yeah that is really useful it really gives you a chance to f- kind of feel out where you're comfortable and where you can in- like envision yourself for the next four years so that's awesome
0: Yeah, I've never been to the one medical school on the East Coast. I've never been to that state. (laughs) So that's so risky. (laughs) So I should probably go look at it. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a great place to live. So we'll see. And I'll I'll let you guys know what that is. Probably when I decide where I'm going to go to med school. Right. Very fair. (laughs) We're excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Natalie, do you have any fun activities planned for the holidays? Um, I
1: do not as of right now, just kind of gonna spend some time with my family. I think Aww. maybe on New Year's, I'll get together with a couple of my girlfriends and just have a fun little night. <laughs> maybe watch the New Year's Rock and Eve and make some cookies or something.
0: <laughs> Is that what they call it? The Rock and Eve on TV? Yeah,
1: the New Year's oh Rock and Eve. Have you not ever seen it?
0: No, I have. <laughs> um, I just have this like one memory of 2013 watching Rock and Eve and seeing yeah. like like the artist. What was it called? Um, oh, do you remember that? You probably it's always nervous, crazy that song. I'm sexy and I know it playing all year <laughs> and the entire New Year's Eve. I think it was 2013.
1: Oh my gosh, <laughs> that 2013. Song. That was so long ago. That's a decade ago but so I don't remember that specifically but (laughs) I'm not surprised they always have the most just hilarious artists and it's always fun to watch the ball drop and stuff I personally am a fan of the rock and eve so (laughs) new year's is one of my favorite holidays but for christmas yeah just kind of gonna chill with my family and have a good dinner what about you what are you doing
0: I'm hanging out with Alex's family for christmas and i'm going to go to a rooftop bar probably with some friends Ooh. in downtown phoenix girl i got to tell
1: you rooftop bars that was my that was my whole jam when i was in spain that was yes. all we did <laughs> every single night we went to a rooftop bar view of the whole city so beautiful so oh my
0: god i am very jealous <laughs> i know your time will come i hope you have fun send me a picture <laughs> i will i hope there's fireworks i don't even know
1: oh that would be so cute yeah
0: yeah 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 Yeah, i love rooftop
1: bars i'm almost 21 so when when i turn 21 you can bring me to this one if it's a good rooftop bar if you enjoy it <laughs>
0: oh yes i have a lot of bars <laughs> in phoenix nice. to recommend for sure and um, that was your
1: new year's plan you said you were doing new, year's new, plan, new year's plan yeah oh, okay, christmas nice. was with
0: alex yeah I know um, I usually go home to um Florida or my mom has been living with her boyfriend in London lately. So sometimes I go there, but that was only once before. Um, that's I can't cool that now. Yeah. <laughs> it's an expensive flight. Yes, yes, definitely. Oh my an God.
1: expensive Christmas. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so fun that she lives in London. What's London like?
0: I've never been there. Oh, it's beautiful. You'll have to go. Maybe study abroad there next. Right. It's cold, huh? it's all right it's pretty temperate though I'd say oh wow especially at this time of year I would think they probably have a white
1: Christmas which would be fun as an Arizonan who's never had a white Christmas (laughs) that sounds like an amazing time (laughs) a lot of my friends are actually very shocked that I've never experienced a white Christmas like my friends that are not from Arizona like they're genuinely they're genuinely sorry for me (laughs) they're like how does it feel like Christmas then if you wake up and it's not snowing like I don't, it's just a, it's just another day in December. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> yeah, I went outside and it was like 80
0: degrees. So I was like, OK, I know. my God, it's been getting so hot here.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's fine with me, though. I get cold too easily. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I want to go ahead and transition to our guest speaker episode with MD, PhD student Jonathan Sussman, and I'll go ahead and introduce him then. All right, everyone, I would love to introduce Jonathan Sussman. Jonathan is a fourth-year MD, PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. He's studying genomics and computational biology in the context of brain tumor biology. He previously studied biomedical engineering and music, dual degree programs, at the University of Southern California, and then spent a year conducting molecular biology research at the Scripps Institute. When not in the lab or playing the flute, he enjoys cycling and trying the plethora of restaurants around Philly or Philadelphia. Um, thank you so much for joining us again, Jonathan. How's it going?
2: Thanks for having me as always. It is going great. Um, I am now in the middle of the PhD phase. And yeah.
0: right, right now
2: I'm actually not in Philadelphia, but rather I'm in my home in San Diego, California.
0: Oh, oh, really?
2: I'm missing all the snow.
0: Oh my my god, God. we've been scheduling this as if we're in East Coast time. I tried to make this easier for you and I ended up making harder for all of us.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: I I just pretend that I'm still there so that no one has to think about the time differences because otherwise it gets way too confusing. So I just I I get up at six o'clock in the morning just pretend that I'm still in Philadelphia.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. Are you enjoying being home? Do you like California? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's really nice
2: here. Just right before this, the reason that I was running a couple minutes late as I was just getting back from doing some cycling oh awesome yeah you definitely can't really do
1: that in the snow huh yeah really a snow sport
2: (laughs) I've gotten really good at riding my bike around the city in Philadelphia navigating all the cars and uh, oh yeah trying to limit my road rage but the one thing that I I, I'm too afraid of is snow and ice
1: yeah you gotta be safe wear a helmet (laughs) always yeah i love riding my bike outside i would feel like so scared though of weaving through traffic and being in a big city like that do people ever get mad at you for like all the time you?
2: i can't go two blocks without getting screamed at i kind of make a game out of it it's, it's like my, oh my, my entertainment each day
1: you're so strong <laughs> i don't know if i could withstand oh my all that berating
2: <laughs> or stupid it's a different way to look at it
1: yeah there you go i'm glad, I'm glad it's a game for you and it's something fun <laughs> Oh my God.
0: <laughs> well, I want to ask it. my first question. Um, just remind us a little bit about where you are at in your journey. I know you said you're in mid MD PhD program, but what does that look like for you? And like when do you start rotations and what does a typical day look like for you right now?
2: So as kind of a brief overview of what I've done so far and what the time like timeline has looked like for me. So now I finished the first two years of medical school, meaning I finished at least at Penn, that's all of the preclinical classes. So I've gone through all of the basic organ system blocks, all of the yeah. basic biology-based classes. Finished the whole thing with an exam every two weeks, or you know, two to four weeks of exams. Um, done with all of that, and then I got six months of clinical rotations. And generally, the MD students will do a year of clinical rotations, and then on the other side, they'll do some electives, and then research for for six months. Uh, MD-PhD students, on the other hand, will do the first half year of rotations, then will do all of their research, and then they'll be exempt from the medical school research. The PhD essentially covers all of that. And then they finish all of the research, uh, all the rotations, sorry, do the electives, and then have a little bit of free time to kind of fill in the, the missing pieces for anything that was started but not finished in the PhD. So I did rotations in internal medicine and surgery, since surgery is my main interest, and
0: mm-hmm. internal
2: medicine is is required uh, to do before the PhD, because that's really your, your fundamental foundation in medicine itself, covers yes. all of medical, uh, medical fields. Then I've done one year now of PhD classes, uh, while simultaneously kind of Starting the main thesis research that I'm going to do, but even that being said, I've begun a bunch of that as a result of my first lab rotation that I did in the uh, interim between the first and second year. So in MD/PhD programs, it's not just you know medicine and research and kind of alternating back and forth. It really is these two um, two streams that are kind of intertwined together. You know while I'm studying medicine, I still have these research projects in the background. I learned more medicine, yeah. came back to the labs um, or the data that I was working on now that I do more or less computational type of research um, and continue to bring what I've learned in medical school, research and vice versa. And let the research itself guide what I focus in on, I'm uh, on, on kind of honing in my ultimate clinical interests. So after finishing those classes, Oh, I forgot to mention. Step one is all out of the way. Um, <laughs> Yay! So now I'm done Ooh. with the majority of, you know, in class. No more classes. Period. Yay. Uh, so yeah. I don't have to sit in a class, and I, I I think this is true at least for a while. No more free response exams. Yeah. Uh, medicine, most oh things God. are multiple choice. Um, in in PhD land, you know, you have classes in a range of stuff: biology, statistics. You know mm-hmm. all, all all relevant things, um, and it was the first time that I had to do a math test in several years. I dusted off. Oh my god! Wow.
0: Wait, like statistics in your statistics, statistics class? Yeah. Right. Oh I my gosh.
2: In. I really like math. Uh, my yeah. dad was a math major, and and his his whole thing is math. My uncle is a math professor, so my family is really oh. math oriented. Yeah, that um, should I help. Kind of doing... Sorry. I just said that should help. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly did, but I, I really yeah. miss doing math. So I, I want to do a PhD that was a little bit more mathy to kind of bring back oh. the good times of all the math that I've done. And uh, <laughs> one class was enough. And then I'm like, I think I've had my fill of this. Yeah.
0: I remember us talking about this
2: But <laughs> <That's laughs> a Like,
0: oh my gosh, you love math so much. Yeah. <laughs> now you're able to do it again. <laughs> yeah.
1: And did you say this math class was multiple choice or?
2: No, this was was free response.
1: This
0: was the free response. Oh, okay. I had to sit there
2: with the formulas, solving the formulas. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh my God. So the PhD classes, I remember when I worked in my research lab at ASU, um, I worked with PhD students and they were taking like some standard molecular biology, immunology, higher level, 500 level courses. Um, is that kind of similar to what you're doing and how is it different than like the basic biology blocks of the medical school curriculum?
2: So to be honest, I've learned really everything that I know about biology and physiology. I know. And how... how many
0: biology classes can you take? <laughs>
2: right. I've learned everything from medical school. Uh, PhD classes have shifted over time. And PhD classes used to be, in biology, a lot more serious than they are now. And -hmm. in some fields, PhD classes are indeed a lot more serious. Um, If you study computer science, for example, PhD classes are really intense. People can barely handle two to three classes per semester and don't really have any time for research or anything else. These are really high level classes, machine learning, advanced machine learning artificial intelligence programming languages um, these are hard classes and if you're you're studying something like physics this is just off the off the charts difficult i mean it makes it pales in comparison to any undergrad class that you can you, you can look at
0: yeah wow but
2: biology is a little bit of a different story because biology is a field and when i say biology i'm really talking about anything in the biomedical sciences not just like molecular biology Right. chemistry, biophysics, uh, and anything even on the intersection of translational medicine and so forth. Uh, this, these are fields that are changing so rapidly and are so interdisciplinary that the classes True. kind of serve a different purpose. And that purpose is to introduce you to a range of topics and a range of different people as well. These are classes that are largely seminar classes, meaning every class is essentially a different professor, PI comes and gives a lecture about what he's working on, you know, either specifically in the lab or perhaps presents a paper about something in the field that's relevant. And in doing so, you're introduced to a lot of different topics, but you don't really go in depth into any one topic because everything is, is changing so quickly. and it's also a field where you can always learn more, and it, it doesn't really have the fundamental, you know, mathematical skills that you have in computer science or 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 physics, for example. Mm. Um, that being said, there are some basic skills and just experimental, experiment design statistics. Um, and, you know, interpretation of literature and and things like this, and and a lot of programs are trying to introduce more classes that are focused on the longitudinal skills that you need to know, and this will be something that comes up uh, specifically when we talk about uh, the importance of research, Um, but there's a number of key skills in biology and biomedical research, you know, as I was saying, statistical uh, analysis, experimental design, uh, and so forth, Uh, although still a lot of these classes are very simplistic and don't really fully capture the breadth of uh, the new skills that are, are critical. For example, mm-hmm. the a lot of the biology labs are trying to pivot into adapting the new technologies of high throughput sequencing and other yeah. things that allow you to collect a lot of data at once. But to analyze these data, you can't just use simple t test and other basic stats, you need to understand at least on a foundational level, how to write a computer program, or how more complicated linear models work, you don't need to be a statistician, but you need to understand some basic concepts and just be familiar with the tools and how to use them. Um, So some PhD programs are well, all are really offering these classes, but some are requiring them as part of a standard medical PhD-related curriculum. Yeah, that makes sense. The reason that I, I so I, I came in to the PhD program with an emphasis in cancer biology, but I, then I realized that in cancer biology, you learn about, well, cancer and biology, and both of those things are entirely what you learn about in medical school. And I really wanted to try to focus in on learning more longitudinal skills. So this is why I ultimately switched my PhD Major, if you will, to computational biology. Even though my focus is really cancer biology, my my goal in life is to help understand how cancer works. I don't really have an interest in designing new machine learning methods or anything like that. But the way that we're going to approach cancer in the future, or what we're what we're beginning to do now, requires the use of more and more complex methods. Mm-hmm. And in order to use those methods, um, I I wanted to take classes that taught the basic skills um, rather than just reiterate biology or introduce me to, to different professors.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're focusing on brain oh, no. cancer still, right?
2: Correct. Brain cancer is my, my main thesis work. Although I do some collaborations with, with other labs, um, primarily on pancreatic and liver cancer as well.
0: Mm, awesome. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing where you're at in your journey. Oh, my gosh. Like, it sounds like you love school. I think we can, we talked about this the last episode.
1: <laughs> sounds like you have a lot on your plate for sure. But it, it also sounds like you're really enjoying it. And you seem really passionate about everything that you're talking about. It's really awesome to hear about it from you. I personally don't know too, too much about MD-PhD programs. Lexi, are you interested in an MD-PhD or have you ever thought about it?
0: I started out as a, I guess, pre-MD, PhD, if you will, um, Had like all the way through junior year. That was my plan. I really, really wanted to do it. Oh. I actually went and did ovarian cancer research at University of Geneva. And my goal was to like use that experience and continue with uh, doing something similar like um, cancer biology. But I, you know, it's funny. I have this mentor at ASU who is an MD, PhD physician. She's a pathologist and she convinced me not to do it (laughs) Um, simply just because she was sharing with me her goals or like what my goals would be. And I, I definitely want to be a clinician. I, and after two years of research experience, um, I realized I enjoyed it, but it wasn't something I wanted to do every single day. I think it was more something I wanted to do on the side. Um, But I think that actually brings me into my next question, because sometimes we have like I have friends at pre-medical students who do research in college and they go, you know, I really don't enjoy this, Um, but it's something that is oftentimes required to be competitive Mm. for medical school. And at my most recent interview for medical school, they actually asked me this question. And I thought about um, a way Ooh, to answer an it. But I think question. The best way to answer it would be from you, Jonathan. Um, why do you think research experience is important for future doctors?
2: So let's first define research as yeah. anything that contributes to further knowledge. So research takes on many shapes and sizes. And isn't just about writing papers in nature, right? Research can be done in the context of industry as well. Uh, you know, you get a job at a company and you're working on developing new techniques, new methods, new drugs, and so forth. These are all. Um, this is all research. Anything that contributes new knowledge, in a targeted way. So, there is really three things that you get out of doing research. That is important. The the first is doing research in any capacity makes you ask questions in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you're just absorbing material that other people are telling you. It forces you to think critically about the topic and in doing so, gain a deeper understanding of the science behind it and the field as a whole. You know, It's one thing just to learn about different genes and different diseases and so forth. But it's another thing to really ask, what's missing? Why does this mutation cause? Yeah, yeah. What is the mechanism linking these? Is there something that we can target there? It forces Mm -hmm. you to ask these questions. The second is research isn't just about asking questions and learning about fields and developing knowledge it's also about developing skills both personally and outwardly in fact there's a whole bunch of research that really isn't about develop about just answering questions but developing new methods there was a when single cell sequencing technologies first started to emerge there, there was kind of a running joke um, i don't know if this was ever validated but that there was more single cell analysis methods to analyze the data than actual data sets of real (laughs) biology. Um,
1: How interesting.
2: There's another, there's another joke about it. If anyone comes up with a new method to normalize single cell data, I'm going to scream, you know, (laughs) because (laughs) everyone, there's so many people working on the cutting edge using all of those machine learning types of methods to come up with really interesting and useful ways to gain insight from the data. And there's journals just devoted to this, like Nature Methods, for example, right. um, where where people can publish new platforms to, to analyze data. And some of the most highly cited single cell papers are really just tools that people have written in R and Python, that make it easy for everyone else to load in some uh, you know load in a file, click a button and be able to generate a plot of all your cells, something that used to require really heavy knowledge in programming and mathematics and all of these things that now other people have made it so accessible by developing these methods but it's not just about that it's about teaching skills you know for your own sake when you do research um Just as I was talking about developing skills in general, you learn, you know, you learn general abilities that are going to benefit you in many ways. You learn how to analyze data. You learn how to design experiments. You learn how to do experiments. Um, And everyone does different research and learns different skills. Mm -hmm. If you do clinical based research, you learn how to read a patient's chart, for example. And this is really helpful you know, for for undergraduate students going into medicine, one of the hardest things to do is to understand, just to, to comprehend the language of medicine. Yeah. And I really didn't do nearly as much clinical things in undergrad as many of my peers. And I don't have anyone in my family that does medicine. So it's not something that we, we, we talk about. It's not really a language that I know. So the entire first and, and second year of medical school, is really just learning a language and, and, and being able to internalize that language. So when you hear words and when you read a patient description you know of the, the history of a present illness, yeah. uh, it's not just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that you're translating in your head, mm-hmm. but actually something that has a direct meaning uh, right when you hear it. So an undergrad who does clinical research um, will be learning that skill and when they enter medical school are going to be way ahead of the curve um, when they have to read a patient chart and they're already familiar with the language an undergrad who does research growing cells is going to be way ahead of the curve when it comes to you know doing any sort of lab work um, yeah oh my or, gosh yeah and under for for me i did biomedical engineering and i did a lot of programming and stuff and Those basic skills have enabled me to pivot to computational research and single cell analysis and all these things. I didn't do any of that in undergrad, but it gave me the foundational tools just to be able to exist in the environment. Yeah. And then the third thing is it gets you involved. You know, as a student, most of the time you're being talked at. People are telling you things and you feel you're you're learning a lot. But after many, many years of that, it starts to weigh on you that you're not really contributing. You're just there taking notes on things Mm -hmm. as your life goes by and you want to do something. And it's important to have some sort of purpose. And doing research actually gives you a purpose that you can do, you're, you're, you're doing things, you're contributing things, um, to, you know, the greater purpose that the lab or the clinical research group, um, and and beyond, you know, when you, when you write a paper or contribute to a paper, um, it connects you with, with professors. Um, and when you get, even as an undergrad, if you develop a unique skill, you can be the one that other people go to, for help on 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 something, I, I've gotten really good at the single cell sequencing analysis. And to me, it's just kind of an, an extension of basic programming. But to many other people, it's either complicated, boring, or both. And I find it <laughs> very fun. I find it fun and enjoyable to analyze these huge data sets. Yeah. So people from from other labs will come to me you know, both both students, postdocs, you know, people above me wow. uh, and even, even different PIs, you know, because they need some expertise and some help in analyzing data. And I have the time because, you know, obviously a, a PI in computational biology is going to know way more than me, but they don't have the time to analyze some random data set from, from a random yeah. lab. Right. So I have the time and I have the knowledge. And that unique combination of time and knowledge allows me to contribute um, in an important way. So people are actually coming to me for, you know, legitimate help, not just as an exercise to learn stuff.
0: That's awesome. yeah. I think you definitely hit so many points that I just resonate with so much. And I was thinking of, as you were talking, I was thinking back to my undergraduate experience and what is something? thing that I, I am myself an expert in, and it is 100% my research experience. So my degrees in microbiology, and I feel like the most I know about microbiology really like that. I feel like I can talk to and educate someone about is multi-drug resistant TB and specifically like the proteins I worked with and the experiments I ran. And I really enjoyed it and learning about the history of TB as well and why we no longer have it in the United States. Um, and I think There's a difference, like you said, being talked at versus working with either the disease or the the mechanism of action or the process. And I feel like I know a lot about the different mechanisms and functions of antibiotics, Um, alternatives to antibiotics, as I worked with like alternative antibiotics, like antimicrobial peptides, or maybe like silver and copper nanoparticles, um, simply through my research experience. And like the global fight against antibiotic resistance and like the history of that as well. And so my when I work with patients in the ER or in the dermatology office who are like, why do I need to take this antibiotic? Um, of course, I give them a much shortened version, but I can explain to them in a way that they can understand, like, here's why you can develop resistance. Um, it's, it fights only a certain type of bug, which we call bacteria. And I feel like that background for me it just, uh, yeah, like you said, makes you feel like an expert and it gives you the most knowledge you can out of undergrad. And I can definitely (laughs) translate it into my degree or in medicine.
2: It's, it's the, the feeling that you get in the beginning of medical school is that every question that is asked of you, you see it as a quiz, Mm. you know, (laughs) but by doing research and generating the kind of confidence yeah. to become an expert in some area, um, you you start to pivot from seeing every question that's asked of you is just, okay, this is, you're you know, you're a student, you're being asked a question, it's clearly a quiz, to being asked a question because you're legitimately being asked the question so that yeah. you can yeah. contribute. And it helps you gain confidence to work on a team of people that are, are much older and much more experienced than you.
0: Oh yeah. A hundred percent. That's a little intimidating, right? (laughs) I've definitely worked with the PhD students I've worked with, and I was a little bit intimidated by my PI, but now we're like very close. (laughs) And we work hand in hand together, especially in undergrad. And I think that definitely gave me the confidence in my job as a scribe. Uh, I work alongside the PAs and providers and the physicians and, um, when they provide constructive criticism on my notes, I I can receive that as if I'm working with them, not like I guess right. I'm not intimidated anymore as I was when I first started working with physicians. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for such an extensive answer on why research experience is important to become a doctor. Like you said, and I totally agree with this. I, I think it gave me the foundations I would need yeah. in scientific discovery. And I just know a lot more about the specific world of medicine I was involved with. And it prepared me to better explain certain diseases that I was focusing on to my patients in my career. Um, so I wanted to end with our last question and sort of like a lighthearted note, uh, what has been the most rewarding or exciting part of your program, whether it's specifically in the educational or curriculum part, or maybe like the social side, um, what has been the, your favorite part so far?
2: So this actually dovetails really nicely into the last thing that you were just talking about, about being a a scribe and being able to talk to patients about uh, their conditions and being able to actually feel like you're part of the team. And to me, the rotations um, have really been the most rewarding part for me, especially when you can really independently make a difference in someone's life Um, because as a medical student, you know, just as I was saying with research, you know, as a medical student, it's more learning than contributing, especially in the beginning. Um, Whereas in research, it's not going to harm anyone if you contaminate the cells or anything. So you can, you can have a little bit more autonomy to, to to mess around (laughs) and things out. Whereas in, in medicine, it's uh, obviously not the case, Mm. Uh, but that doesn't, you still can't think or speak or or interact with people and medical students have just like what i was saying with research they might they they might have the least amount of knowledge but they have the most amount of time and this is something you'll probably hear from from other people as well medical students have the least knowledge but the most time meaning while the residents and attendings are running around you know taking care of so many responsibilities medical students are tasked with focusing on a small subset of patients, understanding their conditions really well, and practicing interacting with patients um, and examining them in different ways. So, you know, medical students are often the ones that give patients the most comfort in the hospital since they can sit there and talk to them for a long time, sometimes even hours. And one of the most rewarding things has has been being able to sit with patients, get to know people from all different walks of life. I've met people in Philadelphia who were from, you know, all these crazy parts of yeah. Philadelphia you hear about, and they're telling me stories about- Philadelphia is
1: I, wild. <laughs> I have yeah. to say, that's a that's a good city to be studying in medical school because they yeah. have people oh, yeah. from all that over. Is, yep. That
2: is right. And to be able to explain to a patient you know, his medical condition in a very simple way, because you just learned about it. So yeah. you can explain exactly what's going on. And for the patient to say, you know, you really gave me clarity about what's going on. You helped me understand why this is help- happening and you helped me be able to move forward. Wow. That is the most rewarding yeah. experience um, that you get. And and that's why I love medicine because you get these yeah. types of experiences all the time. It's very different than research where you're constantly toiling away and then maybe in 30 years, you know, your citation count will go up and Ooh. something you developed will go into some clinical trial, but you get that immediate feedback um, that you're really making a difference. And, you know, to me, that's, that's been one of the most significant aspects and, and really reinforced the, the fact that um, I wanna continue to do this every day.
1: Yeah, Aww. that was a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, we agree. Wow, I think. That, yeah, I've yeah. um. Sorry, Lexi, you go ahead. No, I'm you go. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. Or anything. I was just gonna say. I think that was a really like amazing way to put it, and I think that also brings up like why research is so important. Kind of how you were saying before, it's so important to. Connect with people on that level, but you don't always get that from just being in the research lab. But then you also get to be contributing to science, developing every day the science that is helping those patients. So that's really awesome. And also, like, kind of how you were saying, like research helping you to ask different questions that you might not have asked before. I think that's a really important part of why undergrads, especially, should start doing research. Because, like you were saying, the first years of medical school, everything seems like a quiz, you think everything has an answer. But you need to learn, you kind of need to get out of that box and just kind of realize that's exactly that. Right. Yeah. Like a lot of people get stuck. They're like, okay, what is the answer to this question? We're so used to having like recalling science facts and you need to get out of that and you need to start thinking critically and beyond so that you can make a difference. And that's the most fulfilling thing, making a difference, contributing to change and also teaching others. If you're an expert in something, you can teach it. And teaching is, I think, one of the most fulfilling things in life. I don't know if everybody, I don't know if everybody thinks that, but... <laughs>
2: That's right. One of the most important parts of research, one of the most important parts of research is the last step, which is communicating the results.
1: Yes. You know, what really
2: impresses me when I interview people for Penn, uh, what really impresses me in terms of research is not the complexity of what they did, but understanding each of the steps in the research process. And the people who really impress me oftentimes have very simple research uh, because they're not part of some big group. Um, but they're really are doing it to contribute something and to learn for themselves. And they demonstrate every step of the way, you know, coming up with an idea, asking the question, developing the method, designing the experiment, conducting the experiment, analyzing the data and presenting the data, all of those steps. And that's, you know, the, really the big takeaway when you do research is not just to become a master at pipetting the cells or analyzing the data. (laughs) <laughs> but really getting the big picture and yes. all of those steps.
0: And
1: yeah. communicating it. And that's the most important part. You got to be able to tell people what you learned.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the most reporting part of my experience is my PI made us all like write an extensive article right. in ninth grade reading level of the research that we were conducting. Because, that's an amazing because, task. <laughs> according to her, that was like the the general reading population level she's like I want you to be able to explain this when you're a doctor to like patients in a way that they can understand and I was like oh my gosh how do I under- how do I explain molecular biology
2: <laughs> And you um, did it. but I
0: did it it you was hard it. I got it down I didn't make it to ninth grade I made it to 11th grade because there were some some words that just wouldn't budge but
1: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah um yeah that's such a fun task
1: and I think it's important for everybody to be able to do that honestly if you can explain it at the most basic level like to a child kind of a thing you might not be able to use all the big words you want Lexi I know if you can explain it to like the most base on the most basic level then you're going to be an amazing doctor it's just so true because Mm -hmm. kind of like how Jonathan was saying when you're the medical student and you're the one that's interacting the most with the patient and making them feel more comfortable you are the main one that's going to need to kind of explain the whole situation there. And if they can't understand what you're saying, that's not going to end well, I don't think. <laughs> exactly. and
2: and when people ask you questions, you learn as well. when you're explaining stuff to to patients or or actually in in research as well, one of my favorite things to do is try is talk to undergrads in the lab about the research because they understand the science they they're they've in fact many times just taken the class relevant to, the research. Um, so they understand all the, all the terms, but being able to put things in context and answer questions that seem kind of simple. Yeah. You really realize where the holes in, in your own knowledge are and what you've taken, what you've taken for granted or things that you never really thought about, uh, the complexity. Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is for NPHC, this last summer we had a um a speaker come in he was Dr. Tom Mullaney from Stanford he did an amazing session on research and he told us in the chat to ask like he showed a picture and then he said just ask the most simple questions you can think of like as many questions as possible just ask a question about the picture but he was like just really like simplify it so that was really interesting that you said that on the surface, the question seems simple, but it's those simple questions that might be the most important to research. It was a really eye-opening session. So not to just plug the NPHC conference there, but it was actually <laughs> like, it was such a good session. And I really learned that research starts with the most basic, basic questions, and then you build up from there. So yeah, it's all about asking the simple questions. Sometimes you need to look at the the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us again. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you back on the podcast. And Thank you again,
2: as always.
0: Yeah. Thank Do you have you. any last words before we hop off?
2: I think you covered everything and, and I couldn't have said it better myself.
0: <laughs> Great. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I'll go ahead and roll the credits. This podcast is produced by Ari Rosenthal, Lorelai Edmonds. You can find our conference on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at National Braille Community or MPHC 2020. And you can find our podcast on Instagram at Braille Pod. You can find all of our events, including our next National Braille Conference, May 18th through the 19th, at nationalbrailleconfconf.org. And please like, leave a review, or tell one friend if you liked our podcast. Thanks for listening. See you later. See you.